When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to Basketball Conference, the ACC Football Podcast. My name is Joey Weaver. He is Mike McDaniel. Mike, we got some bowls to recap. Do you, uh, you enjoy bowl season? I did. Um, usually when bowl season comes to an end, I'm horribly, horribly depressed because that means I have to go back to work, which is entirely the case. I'm now back in Columbus, Ohio, Joey, as you can see behind me. Um, for the listeners that are that are out there trying to envision what this looks like. It's basically just a hotel room that I record in essentially once a week throughout the college football season. So we're back in that mode now, fully back at work, Joey, unfortunately. Back in the saddle. Yeah. A lot lot of road games on your end, yeah, at least this season. Unfortunately. um, Yeah, it's been a – I work in financial services in addition to everything else I do, and that's like my core job, and I've been on the road servicing a client for the better part of the last nine months. So that continues, Joey, that continues. (laughs) Well, sounds like fun. Um, I, I, trust me, I wish I could be right there with you. I, that sounds like a real party. Um, yeah, (laughs) I am instead in the comfort of my own home, um, dealing with, you know, all that comes with that. But, uh, Mike, we are at the end of ACC Bulmas. Uh, we had 10 bowl games that we had to pick and, I would be remiss, Mike, if I did not start by tooting the hell out of our horn. Our picks for these bowl games were on the friggin' money. Hope you guys made some money like we did. Yeah, hope you were not fading us for bowl season here because you boys went 10-0 and straight up. We agreed on every game in terms of who was going to win. We picked the winner correctly for all 10 ACC bowl games. We were 8-2 and two against the spread. We had a few totals sprinkled in there that we were pretty good on. Like, we were cash money here in the bowl season. It feels good, man. Usually it's really hard to handicap bowl games unless you listen to us. Absolutely. We were this year. all this over. This year only. I, yep. I, yeah, I was proud of us. So, go ACC to us. Um, we, we might be the team, of the team of the week in the ACC. I mean, pick pick somebody else who went undefeated in ten games. Yeah, we'll wait. We'll wait. Other other than Clemson, <laughs> other than Clemson, that's right. Uh, Mike, we do have some of these bowl games that we're going to recap. Let's start right there with the Clemson and uh, the Fiesta Bowl. Number three, Clemson twenty nine. Number two, Ohio State twenty three. We were talking back and forth during this game. This game was an absolute banger. I mean, it was it was fun. It was physical. There was all sorts of. of moments in there that were just iconic um what a game I, I don't know what to say it, it it really turned into i i thought in the first half ohio state goes up 16 to nothing and it, it felt like it was more than that and you just started wondering i don't know if if clemson's going to be able to come back and win this game you know and even mount a comeback of any sort and, and then the game really turns their mid, middle of the second quarter. Um, Ohio State gets a targeting call on Trevor Lawrence, I think on a third down that would have uh, stalled the drive. I think he threw yeah. an incomplete pass. 
pass rusher gets a uh, a targeting call on Trevor Lawrence that I thought was completely warranted. Yeah. Uh, that extends the drive. Clemson goes on to score a touchdown, and and, and that was really a major turning point. Um, there was some some injury issues with J.K. Dobbins from Ohio State. There was a big portion of the middle middle of the game that he missed that you could really tell Ohio State's offense was feeling feeling that pretty badly. Um, Clemson ultimately it's it's a, a couple of just huge plays, huge runs from Travis Etienne, and, and even a couple from Trevor Lawrence. Um, it made a huge difference in this game. I thought it was brilliantly coached, really on both sides. And and ultimately, what this just came down to, Mike, was which team was going to make a play or catch a break, at, you know, late in the game. And it turned into being Clemson. It did, yeah. Um, you know, the story coming out of the game, which was, I think, a little bit unfortunate, was oh, was it or was it not a, a fumble? <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, because, what was your take yeah. on that? I, I don't know. I mean, what what do you what do you think? Let, let, let's go with you first and, and see what you have to say, and then I'll chime in here. I I was okay with the decision they made to overturn the call in the field, and and the only reason that I say that is that if you watch it in slow motion, yep. okay, yeah, like technically the ball is in his hands and it's not really moving in between his hands, but if you watch it in real time, I mean, it happens so fast that it's just hard to say that he had possession. So. That was my take was that if you, you know, the real time versus the slow-mo thing. So I, I was okay saying let's overturn this. So I want to talk briefly because on Christmas day, about three days earlier, there's a basketball game that took place between the Lakers and the Clippers and something similar happened, right? So in real time, and, and you would get this in any other quarter of a game that you're watching other than like the fourth quarter in the last two minutes, uh, on the basketball court where LeBron James had the ball knocked out of his hands by Patrick Beverly of the Clippers. And in real time, it's clear that, okay, Patrick Beverly knocked the ball out of LeBron's hands. It's out of bounds on Beverly, right? But then since everything is reviewed inside the final two minutes of the basketball game, they obviously slowed it down into really, really slow motion. And when you see it in real time, it looks like Beverly just knocks the ball straight out of LeBron's hands. It goes out of bounds. Any other time of the game, that's not being reviewed, and that's out of bounds on Beverly. Lakers keep the ball, right? Mm-hmm. Since it was inside two minutes, they you know super slow-mo the, the whole play, and it touched off of LeBron's fingertip last. So mm-hmm. it was out of bounds on the Lakers, and I hated that because in real time – it's like, okay, what's the right call? But in real time, like, that's not what happened. In real time, the ball was actually knocked out of bounds, and you wouldn't officiate it that way in the other three and a half, three and three quarters quarters of the game, right? Like, you mm-hmm. wouldn't officiate it like that. Yeah. Now, the time the time frame of this call in the Clemson-Ohio State game wasn't the same, but the overall premise was when you slowed it down into super slow motion, sure, looked like he fumbled. In real time, it didn't look like he ever really possessed that pass, right? And Ohio State is really, really upset about this because they obviously recovered the ball. And, you know, they thought that they caught a huge break with Clemson driving. But, you know, Clemson ends up scoring off of that drive and ends up being a much bigger deal at the end of the game than it probably should have been. In my opinion, Joey, um, that call aside, this was a really, really well-played football game. And to answer your question, yeah, I mean, I was okay with them overturning it. The majority of the internet was not. They're like, that's definitely a fumble. But yeah. in real time, I, I just to me, it didn't look like he ever possessed it. Was that Justin Ross? Um, I don't remember. 
Might have been yeah. T. Higgins. I can't remember, but yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head. Anyway, um, in real time, it just didn't look like he ever really possessed it, whoever it was. And I, and um, I hope that my my ACC fandom is not like giving me some Clemson colored glasses as I as I look at that. But it, it really, truthfully, I mean, I've got a lot of extended family that are big Ohio State fans, so I was really more just rooting for a good football game at this at this right. point. And, and so right. I. I was cheering for both teams. I thought it was fun. And, and that was, that was my takeaway in the moment was no, I think that's an incomplete pass. So it is. Yeah. And I had, I, I said, so I said it was an incomplete pass on Twitter. I had some Ohio state fan dive into my, dive into my mentions about it saying that I apparently was like fanboying for Clemson. And my response was basically the same as yours. I was like, outside of like an insignificant $5 bet I put on Clemson to win this game. Like, I don't really care who mm-hmm. wins one way or another. I really don't. Um, so that goes for your Clemson orange colored glasses thing. Mm-hmm. But um, no, I thought Ohio State really controlled this game for a majority of the first half. I mean, Clemson kept shooting themselves in the foot, just like missed opportunities, bad penalties, passes that should have been caught. Um, wasn't a fan of the play calling overall um, for a majority of the first half for Clemson. I thought Ohio State came out, just hit him right in the mouth. I thought J.K. Dobbins was really impressive. And, you know, more so than the Clemson, uh, the, the fumble that wasn't that everybody was talking about, uh, the bigger moment for me was when J.K. Dobbins got hurt. I mean, when J.K. Dobbins gets injured and he's a shell of himself for the rest of the game, you know, that's the bigger deal for me. Um, the, you know, the fact that, you know, that targeting call happens, right? That was obviously a huge, huge play in the game. Um, you know, Clemson was in a very tough position where they were getting backed up defensively. Ohio State moving the ball up and down the field. J.K. Dobbins, of course, drops that touchdown pass. It would have been a spectacular play, right? He dives uh, for that touchdown catch, ends up being overturned. They ruled it a touchdown on the field. That play is overturned. Ohio State settles for a field goal. Uh, Clemson, again, they're outnumbered on a screen pass out to the left-hand side. Justin Fields throws to J.K. Dobbins. If Dobbins catches that pass, he's got four blockers to two Clemson defenders. He's probably scoring a touchdown on that play, Joey. It was a walk-in, yeah. That was a walk-in touchdown, and that was the turning point in the game for me. There was the targeting call. There was the fumble that wasn't. You know, but outside of all that, it was the two J.K. Dobbins drops. The first one, I hate to call it a drop because it would have been a great diving catch, but the second one was for sure a drop, and he was jogging into the end zone. Instead of Ohio State scoring 14 points there, Joey, they only scored six, and that kept Clemson in this football game. Clemson's offense finally started clicking there late in the first half. The Travis Etienne touchdown run uh, with 245 to play in the first half, and then immediately getting Ohio State to go three and out on the ensuing possession and getting the ball back with time remaining. And they were setting up for that, uh, that quarterback draw that Trevor Lawrence took off on. And I don't think anybody was expecting him to take that 67 yards to the house. Clemson scores two touchdowns, Joey in a minute and 35 seconds to take the, to uh, either, you know, go down 16, nothing or to cut it to 16, 14 and they cut it to 16 to 14 and really turn this game. They scored the first mm-hmm. touchdown of the second half as well. had scored 21 unanswered points. And at that moment I said, oh, is this the part where Clemson just blows the doors off of Ohio State? Because they completely shifted the momentum. But, you know, obviously the Justin Fields touchdown pass and orchestrate a really, really nice drive to start the fourth quarter. And then, you know, they were setting up for it that whole game because Clemson was running that, you know, that quarterback option play where either Lawrence kept it or ETN got the handoff right up the middle and they were setting up for that jump pass that they threw that entire game that went to ETN who took off running for a 34 yard touchdown. They had the T Higgins two point conversion after that to take the lead. And then obviously, you know, 
good on Ohio State for going right up the field uh, with Justin Fields. It looked like Ohio State was going to score a last-second touchdown uh, to win this football game, but there was miscommunication on the final play of the game. Justin Fields throws that really back-breaking interception uh, in the end zone with some miscommunication with his wide receiver that obviously ended up deciding this game. But, you know, my biggest takeaway is that these two teams were very evenly matched. They were very evenly coached. There were a couple of decisions on either side coaching-wise that I think, you know, you could really question and scratch your head at. But I think overall it was really, really even on both sides. Um, you know, for Clemson to come out and play the way that they did and to um, obviously coach the way that they did was expected. But I was really impressed with Ryan Day, Joey. And a lot of people were talking about, oh, well, Ryan Day be out coaching this game is kind of first exposure uh, to a playoff game, obviously, as a head coach. But I thought he responded really well. He coached the game for the most part very aggressively. It put Clemson on their heels. And I think overall, you know, Ohio State's missed opportunities in the red zone is what ultimately cost them this game. Those two field goals they kicked instead of scoring two touchdowns late in the first half really could have put the pressure on Clemson. And then obviously the miscommunication at the end of the game was unfortunate there with that interception that Justin Fields threw. But man, Fields is a star, man. He's going to be right up there with Trevor Lawrence next year in the Heisman Trophy race. Yep. Uh, he is he is outstanding, every bit as good as advertised. And even, you know, even though his knee was banged up and he didn't wasn't able to run the ball necessarily as well as he wanted to. I think he was still every bit as effective and maybe we did him a little bit of a disservice on the preview. Um, I, I know we talked about his injury and how that would loom large in this game. And I'm not sure that that was really, that was really why Ohio state lost this game. I, I think they had this game won, and they had a few mistakes that ended up ultimately costing them in the long run outside of that fumble. That wasn't, that got everybody up in a skirt. Yeah. I mean, I, I would be tempted to say, I don't, I don't think Justin Fields not being at 100% is the reason that Ohio State lost the game, right? Like, that's that's yeah. a detail that kind of played into a certain degree. Like, Ohio State lost the game because they, they kicked multiple red zone field goals instead of finishing with touchdowns, as you as yep. you alluded to. Yep. And, and you can also kind of point to what I thought was a subtly, you know, maybe the only real mistake, and, and this is kind of related, the only real maybe mistake that Ryan Day made in this game from a coaching standpoint Three minutes to go, fourth and four from the Clemson 39-yard line, and they punted. Hated it. They punted. Hated it. They punted, and they, they did back Clemson up to the six-yard line. Clemson turns around and goes four plays, 94 yards, and a touchdown. And they, they took the lead in the game, and that, that's what really ultimately put it away. So, I mean, if you're going to be aggressive, you know, you're, you're that deep in the game. You've got a two-point lead. You're, you know, you're working in your way into scoring territory and, and just sitting there and punting that way was – it was a bit tough, and, and especially when you knew that Ohio State's defense was probably starting to run out of gas. But I felt like it was telling in what we talked about. You know, J.K. Dobbins, he missed a, a significant portion of the middle of this game. He still finishes with 18 carries for 174 yards and a touchdown. Clemson was having almost zero luck stopping him. Yep. Look, look at the other, you know, the only other two that carried the ball, Justin Fields, Master Teague. So Master Teague was the backup here. Combined, Great name, by the way. Yeah. Excellent name. Oh, really good. Justin Fields, Master Teague combined 21 carries for 22 yards. So they were having a lot of luck running the ball with J.K. Dobbins, and, and obviously that, those numbers still includes you know, the four sacks that Clemson got on Justin Fields. But they, Justin Fields was not part of the run game. Like we said, that was probably going to be the case with his knee being how it was. And yet, this was as close as it was. And, and I mean, just what a game. What a game. I don't want to knock Ohio State anymore. I mean, this was a, a remarkably played game, and it truly was a matter of – 
who was going to catch a break or, or catch a bounce at some point, and uh, that's what enabled Clemson to put it away. They were so evenly matched on both sides of the football, mm-hmm. and I, you know, we went back and forth, or at least I did. I went back and forth with Alex Kirshner from the Banner Society yep. about this because he tweeted something out. He basically said, what more does Clemson need to show you to prove that they're like ready for the spotlight. Right. And, and playing really good football. I was like, Oh, I don't know. Go on another like two season worth win streak. Like, Yeah. Literally. I mean, just continue to do what you're doing. If your Clemson was the whole point, which he got a good laugh at. Um, Debo's going to say they got to go 30. No, again, <laughs> again, right. Like do it again to prove that you're real. Like, I don't know what more it's going to take at this point. It's, I mean, you're going to get the inherent, like, negative ACC bias, right, for people outside of this podcast, which I understand it's been a bad season for the ACC, but mm-hmm. Clemson is the exception to the rule. They are, and they will continue to be so as long as Davos a co-chair. Yeah. they Up until this game, they were not a good team because they had beaten good teams. They were a good team because they had absolutely kicked the crap out of everybody they had played. And which we fully acknowledge. Now they've beaten a good team. They have. They've beaten a good team. They've, be- they've beaten a great team. Like, yeah. Yeah, maybe maybe one of the best teams in college. Not maybe one of the best teams in college football. Maybe the best team in college football when it's all said and done, yeah. right? Like they were like everybody could have easily seen Ohio State winning this game and winning the national championship, right? So yeah. like this isn't this isn't one of those things where it's just a coincidence and they're very lucky to be there. Clemson's really really freaking good and yeah. they have national titles to prove it. And I don't know what more they need to show you, but. This was an excellent Ohio State team, the best Ohio State team I've seen since their national championship team, certainly, about five years ago. Um, but they're they're really good. That was a great win for Clemson. Sets up for what could be an epic national championship against an LSU team that kicked the crap out of Oklahoma. But, Joey, even so, and even as good as LSU is and all the storylines, I think we'll be really lucky in the national championship game to get a game as good as what we just saw in this Fiesta Bowl. No kidding. Um, yeah, Clemson moves on to the national championship game. Uh, we are going to come back and preview that game. I don't want to give away too much here, Mike, but just a little uh, little teaser here for you. I know for a fact who is going to win the national title. Do you? I do. A little teaser. You're going to have to come back for the preview to, to hear who it is. The Tigers, I bet. You're going to have to come back for the preview to, <laughs> to hear me use that joke that time. Um, yep. No, there is actually some really interesting voodoo around that whole game, which is extra appropriate because it's New Orleans. But we will—I've got some interesting facts and thoughts on uh, on that matchup and, and all that. So uh, we're going to come back and preview that game. But uh, let's move on here and keep recapping some games again. Clemson twenty-nine, Ohio State twenty-three. Uh, Clemson onto the national title game. Uh, the other New Year's Six game that the ACC was involved in: number nine, Florida thirty-six; number twenty-four, Virginia twenty-eight. Uh, it was an eight-point win for Florida. It was like a backdoor cover kind of situation for Virginia. They score a touchdown in the last minute or so to get it inside of the 14-and-a-half that we were picking against. So that was one of our two misses against the spread. But I, uh, that being said, we we agreed talking you know towards the end of this game, we were really impressed with Virginia and the way that they hung with a really good Florida team. And, and not a Florida team that looked disinterested in being there either. Uh, you know, Virginia was able to give them a game, uh, thought they had once again had a pretty good game plan. And this Virginia team, I thought, held up well and, and performed nicely in a spot where they were ultimately just kind of overmatched. Yeah, that was it. I mean, they were overmatched. Florida had more athletes. Um, this was 
one of the best games of bowl season, in my opinion, for the ACC, right? Mm -hmm. Like for Virginia to go out and play the way that they did against a team in Florida that could easily be preseason top five next year, maybe even like, and at worst, like top six or top seven, Mm -hmm. um, really, really, really good Florida team. They just, they just played and they hung with them. They didn't embarrass themselves. In fact, they played so well. I look Bryce Perkins. He threw four touchdowns in this game, went for over 300 yards, uh, you know, Virginia had success moving the football and did a really nice job throughout this entire game, just kind of managing the game and trying to keep themselves in it. And it was clear that Florida had more athletes, which makes sense. It was Florida. That's what we told you in the in the preview. Um, both of us picked Florida to win and cover, uh, but both of us expected Virginia to play this game a little bit more competitively than I think a lot of people expected them to. Even so, like watching this game, I still came away really impressed with Virginia. They were doing exactly what we said they would do, but they were doing it a lot better than I expected them to anyway. Mm-hmm. Like they were right there a number of times. And even when Florida would stretch things out, Virginia would come up with a touchdown pass or come up with a touchdown run. Like th- something good would happen for Virginia that you weren't necessarily expecting. Like they'd come up with a big first down run or a crucial, crucial touchdown pass that Perkins would throw. And um, they didn't run the ball particularly well in this game, but it felt like, I mean, it was 21 carries for 52 yards against a really good Florida front. And we knew that that would be an issue for Virginia in this game. But even so they came up with a couple of pretty big first down runs, especially in the first half where I was like, okay, they're extending a drive here. Let's see how this pans out. Um, and then you would see Virginia, you know, throw a touchdown pass to keep themselves in it. And, you know, sitting there at halftime down 24 to 14, it was like, okay, well, Florida is clearly the better team, Right. Virginia is playing really, really well in spite of that. And that's really all you can ask for if you're a Virginia fan, considering, you know, the matchup disadvantage that you had across the field, right? And that was offensively, that was defensively. And Bryce Perkins had arguably his best passing game of the season here against a really, really good Florida defense. And that was really good to see in his final collegiate game. So there were some good things done here by Virginia. Um, I think that they're onto something here with Bronco Mendenhall, as we mentioned. Mm-hmm. We weren't neither one of us was 100% sold on the hire. Like we all thought Bronco Mendenhall could coach, but we weren't sure about him coming across the country to a place he's never recruited before. And you know, coming from BYU, you're recruiting a very specific type of athlete all the time, and mm-hmm. now doing something a little bit different at Virginia. How would that pan out? But I mean, Joey, they go to the Orange Bowl. They play a really good Florida team. And the score is maybe not as close as the game was like Florida had a 10 to 12 point lead for a majority of this game. Like they were ahead about a score and a half for the, for the majority of the game, but Virginia played well. um, And I think this is sustainable for Virginia. I don't expect them to be as good next year as they, as they were this year. Maybe I'm wrong, um, but Mm -hmm. I'll I'll sit in that camp, but I do think that this is sustainable in Virginia. I do think that the days of them being a bottom two or three team in the coastal is over. Like, sorry, Virginia tech fans, right? Yep. (laughs) Like Virginia is good. Like they're back. They're good. They're going to be competitive. Um, They have some rebuilding to do next year, but I think the Bronco men and hall is certainly onto something. He's, well on his way to building something sustainable here. Really good season for Virginia. Yeah. I I don't have much to add. I'll just say Bill Connolly and the SB Plus put uh, Virginia's win expectancy here at 23%, which might sound yeah. bad, but that is far from a, like, rousing, no leave no doubt kind of blowout. Like, basically, you would have won that game one out of four times the way that it kind of played out to a certain degree. So... I think, again, with how much it seemed like Virginia was just completely outmatched, I think that was a, a, a really good effort and a, a something to really be proud of, I think, for, for that, them and that team. Um, yep. Bryce Perkins in his last game, he was quite good. 
Um, had some big moments. Uh, Hashish Dubois continues to come up, you know, pretty big down the field, as does Terrell Jana. So, you know, good game for Virginia. And, and you know, it sucks to take the loss, but things could have gone a lot worse. You, you, you covered, and that's not like meant to be insulting, but, you know, covering means you outperformed what people thought you were going to do. So Yeah, I know, I, I know the players and the program as a whole, they don't like moral victories, but we do. Absolutely. <laughs> like, we don't. Assuming, we don't care. Assuming we had Virginia in the points, but we didn't. So <laughs> Yeah, I had Florida in the points, and Joey, that really hurt us, huh? Yeah, it sure did. Uh, Florida 36, Virginia 28. Uh, let's move on to the Music City Bowl. Louisville 38, Mississippi State 28. Uh, did you get a chance to watch much of this game, Mike? I did. Um, Mississippi State having that early lead, and then all of a sudden Louisville coming out guns a-blazing mm-hmm. around halfway through the second quarter, similar to Clemson, actually, in that regard. Yeah. Uh, coming out guns a-blazing in the second quarter, getting Joe Moorhead fired for Mississippi State as a result was something I wasn't necessarily expecting. Yeah. Um, I thought Louisville, would, thought Louisville would win, but good Lord, man. I mean, Louisville, so, so watching this game, and, and obviously, you know, I, I am a Louisville fan after my Georgia Tech fandom, and my, my father was – Born and raised in Louisville, and I was at home watching this with him, you know, and that was all great. Um, I, I couldn't help watching this but thinking, you know, Mississippi State's up 14 to nothing, and Louisville has been, like, repeatedly shooting themselves in the foot. And, and like, they like they fumbled on the, what, the two-yard line or something about yep. to score a touchdown, and there were a couple dumb penalties to extend Mississippi State's drives and such, but it was like, for the majority of the game, like, they're outplaying Mississippi State. Like, if they just keep doing this... They're going to be just fine. And what do you know, Mike? They came they out. They did it. Yeah, they, they scored 10 points before halftime and then come out, you know, pretty friggin' gangbusters in the second half. Um, they go down and score a touchdown on their second drive. Then they get a quick fumble off Mississippi State, run that back for a touchdown, score another one on their next offensive possession. The next thing you know, it's 31-14. They've scored 31 straight points. And um, Tutu Atwell threw a touchdown pass to Mikhail Cunningham and – I mean, there was all sorts of stuff going on. J.D. and Hawkins, again, looks great in this game. I, Mississippi State, I, I wondered a little bit there later in the game if they were starting to quit a little bit. And if, if it was just a 6-6, six and six, we're here in Nashville against a team that we thought we were going to be able to beat, and now stuff's going wrong, and you know what, just forget it. You know, coach might get fired here and all that stuff. Right. I, you know, so I thought that might have been at play a little bit. But, man, just what a, what a finish and what a performance for Louisville to go down early and then come back in such a, a big way and win this game by 10 points. Uh, they finished the season 8-5. and five. Brilliant. I can't say enough good things about uh, Scott Satterfield and his staff and what they've done here. Uh, I thought it was a brilliant performance by them, and especially considering some of the context of what happened early, for them to stick with it and come back was, was just really fantastic, I thought. And, Joey, I think it validates the discussion we had in the preseason that you know, despite Louisville's roster coming back, having only won like two games last year and being really unmotivated playing for Bobby Petrino, you and I were talking about how there was still talent there. Like it wasn't completely devoid of talent. Mm -hmm. The talent just wasn't motivated last year playing for Petrino and who could blame them and ends up being a really, really nice season for Louisville. And, you know, real quick before we move on, Joey, this was because I don't have a ton to add other than, you know, Louisville just kind of exploded offensively. There were a lot of parallels between this watching this game and, you know, watching the Fiesta Bowl where I was like, okay, like Clemson needs one or two good things to happen here, right? To get to, you know, get back into this game and kind of take control. The thing was in the Fiesta Bowl, I wasn't expecting that to happen, like fully take control necessarily because of how good Ohio State was. Mm -hmm. I had the same vibe here where like Louisville was shooting themselves in the foot, right? They fumbled inside the five, like you mentioned, you know, dumb penalties to extend drives. Like 
bad stuff kept happening to Louisville, but I was like, this is kind of weird because I do feel like they're outplaying Mississippi State. Um, there have been a lot of games like that that I've watched here throughout bowl season, throughout the regular season of college football, where I'm like, man, that team really just needs to not do stupid things because they're really outplaying the other <laughs> team. That is exactly what happened here, right? Yeah. And this was a really, really nice win for Louisville. They kind of got their ducks in a row, like, I don't know, a quarter of the way through the second. And then they were like, just like you said, just completely gangbusters, firing on all cylinders, scoring a million points, like yep. looking really, really good. 31 unanswered there. And all of a sudden you look up and, you know, if you went to the bathroom and grabbed another beer and, you know, you looked up, Louisville scored another touchdown. And that's kind of how it felt. Mississippi, you know, Mississippi State scored a couple times late to make it semi-competitive, but good for Louisville, really good win. They got Joe Moorhead fired, which he'll land on his feet. He'll be fine. But yeah. Just a really nice win for Louisville here and a great season. I mean, winning eight games in year one under Satterfield, um, you can build off that. Absolutely you can. Yeah, that's it's almost a dangerous starting point because, like, it's not easy to get to eight wins to begin with. So, like, can you can you get back there next year in a way? Right, exactly. But, you know, I, I just think it's telling what, what they were able to do out, out the gate. Like, if this is what they were able to do out the gate, I mean – they should they should be able to kind of put it together here pretty quickly again with you know and kind of keep the thing rolling especially with the state of the ACC so should be yeah should we'll, be able to yeah we'll find out uh, Louisville thirty eight Mississippi State twenty eight let's keep moving here Mike the Belk Bowl your Virginia Tech Hokies fall the Kentucky Wildcats thirty seven Virginia Tech thirty Lynn Bowden just continues to run and run and run and he is an absolute handful. Um, this was a, a bit of a tough game for Virginia Tech. They got a lot going on the ground in this game, which is maybe about the only time that they've really significantly outrushed their throwing um, in in a, in a game this year. But um, kind of a weird game, it, it, the way it played out. And I think it was really kind of foreshadowed the way that the week leading up to the game happened. There was a lot of just what seemed like completely random chippiness here. I This is kind of a bizarre bowl game top to bottom Mike um, but ultimately yeah I guess Kentucky scores a, a late touchdown to get a little bit of separation uh, they, they needed a go-ahead touchdown with about 15 seconds left and then there's a scoop and score and again it was bizarre top to bottom Mike the final Belk Bowl was one for the books as Belk Bowl is no longer the presenting sponsor starting next season unfortunately for everybody um, and their Twitter account which is phenomenal RIP um yeah, real unfortunate here. Uh, this was really fun. I mean, both teams really cared, which was nice. Um, Virginia Tech and Kentucky players got into a random, like, yelling, pointing, much to do about nothing match, uh, basically a day before the game. And then on the field pregame, Lynn Bowden and Tech players and other Kentucky players were mixing it up a little bit at midfield, and Lynn Bowden threw a punch, uh, which obviously – you shouldn't do that. But he throws a punch at a Tech player, lands a punch. That wasn't good. Um, Bowden ends up playing in this game. Tech fans are real salty and said he shouldn't have played. He should have been ejected because he threw a punch pregame. I don't I don't really care, guys, Like to be honest with you. Like, just stop the run and you win this game. <laughs> I, I, you know, to be honest with you, like, it's, you know, if you think he should have been ejected, fine. Like, I get it. He shouldn't have been throwing punches in pregame warm-ups, um, you know play the game like just play the football game uh tech offensively you mentioned running the football joey they did it at a very high level 6.6 yards per carry in this football game Deshaun McLeese 
11 carries for 126 and a touchdown. He announced that he is declaring for the NFL draft, which we'll get into more in a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, But he has a really nice game, averaged 11 and a half yards per carry, ran the ball at a really high level. Virginia Tech in this game averaged nearly six yards per play. They scored 30 points. Bud Foster had nearly a month to prepare for an offense that was only going to do one thing, and they were unable to stop it. That's been, for better or worse, and Virginia Tech's defense, by the way, they've been pretty good all year. Um, But for better or worse, this has been the Bud Foster defense now for the better part of the last few years. His defenses have had a really, really hard time stopping RPO stuff, and you weren't seeing a lot of RPO in this game in particular with Kentucky, but the one common thread was that you had a mobile quarterback because Lynn Bowden is a wide receiver. Like we told you in the preview, he was basically the emergency quarterback for Kentucky this year. They revamped the entire offense and it was basically pistol triple option for the majority of the season. Yep. And Virginia Tech had a lot of trouble stopping that in the last few years for, against Georgia Tech. They had a lot of trouble stopping RPO stuff most recently against UVA in the final game of the year. And they had a lot of trouble stopping Lynn Bowden in this football game. And he runs through everybody. It's not necessarily something to be totally ashamed of. It's just a bummer that Bud Foster went out that way. Bowden had 233 yards in this game and two touchdowns. Really competitive back and forth game. Uh, Hendon Hooker, I I know he was injured. Um, This is something I could tell you with certainty um, covering the team for Sports Illustrated. He was banged up. He was not 100%. Even so, um, he just did not have his best game. The receivers did not have their best game either. There were a couple of really, really key drops uh, in this game that would have gone for first downs, potentially touchdowns in the red zone, obviously. Damon Hazleton had a drop that was pretty significant and loomed large there late in this football game. But Kentucky goes down. They score with essentially no time left. Uh, They beat Virginia Tech in a really competitive belt bowl. I don't really feel necessarily any better or worse about Virginia Tech moving forward coming off of this bowl game. I think Kentucky was a good team. I think that they were doing this. I know they were doing this to everybody that they played. It was disappointing that Virginia Tech's defense couldn't stop the run of Lynn Bowden, but just a really competitive football game, Joey, that Virginia Tech could have easily won. Um, And, you know, Kentucky just made the play on the last possession of the game. We talked about that with Clemson and Ohio State. Same deal here. It was – one of these teams has to lose. I'm just not sure who it's going to be. Yeah. And that's kind of the vibe of this game. It was a really competitive and fun bowl game. Yeah. I mean, simply put, Kentucky ran 68 plays, 55 run plays. Lynn Bowden had the ball 34 times. Literally yep. half of Kentucky's plays in this game were Lynn Bowden runs. Yep. But but as we said in the preview, that hasn't really mattered. Like hasn't mattered. He he has run the ball over everybody, you know, and so that's it's we kind of figured this might be a bad matchup for Virginia Tech, and it, it kind of those chickens came home to roost. But you know, it, it, I thought that Virginia Tech did. I mean, they led most of this game, and, and were were right there and, and out in front and had a chance to win it, but couldn't uh, couldn't seal the deal at the end. And again, seven points. It, it really was more like a one point win. But Kentucky gets a uh, last play scoop and score touchdown. So uh, you know. I guess that goes in the record books, but it is what it is. Yeah, Tech's doing backyard football in the last play, trying to trying to score. Pitchy, pitchy, woo-woo? What's that? Pitchy, pitchy, woo-woo? Pitchy, pitchy, woo-woo with Pablo Sanchez and uh, Dante Robinson for your backyard football folks. Shout out um, to Scott Van Pelt with that one. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, so it didn't necessarily work out for Virginia Tech, but anyway. Um, yep. Yeah, good win for Kentucky here. Absolutely. Kentucky 37, Virginia Tech 30. Uh, we'll keep going here. The Military Bowl, presented by Northrop Grumman. Uh, North Carolina 55, Temple 13. 
This game was not close, as the score would you know tend to indicate. It was it was maybe a little bit close in the first half. Um, it never it didn't really get away from Temple until after halftime. It was twenty to six at halftime and and all that. But um, this was this was a very chippy game as well for reasons I, I don't really understand how or why. Um, but in the second half, North Carolina comes out and absolutely steps on the gas. Um, they go up 41-6 to in the first 10 minutes of the second half, and, and this thing was over from there. Um, Sam Howell has another huge day. Uh, they were moving the ball at will, both on the ground and through the air. North Carolina just a better team, and Temple absolutely, after a while, did not look like they wanted to be there. Um, the uh, the head coaching record there for uh, our man, I forget his name, Rod, Rod Carey. Carey. Rod Carey. Rod Carey. Yeah, uh, he, he remains winless in bowl games, and I think we saw a little bit of reason why. We did. I was about to say death taxes and betting against Rod Carey in bowl games. Rod Carey yep. is now 0-7, I believe it is, in bowl games. He's now lost six of those seven games by 20 points or more, losing this game 55-10 to in his worst loss in a bowl game as a head coach. Um, North Carolina, really, really good on offense. Best of luck to the ACC stopping Sam Howell next year. He is really, really good. The next two years, because, Mike, he's a true freshman. He is next two years, yeah, but especially next year because they're returning a lot of talent on offense. Uh, I'm going to give you a quick hypothetical, and I, I don't even want an answer. I just want you to something to kind of toss around in your mind a little bit. How much better would Florida State be if they had Sam Howell before he, uh, you know, he flipped to North Carolina? It's just something to think about. It is, and it was a question posed on podcast. Ain't played nobody, and mm-hmm. Bud Elliott had probably a win or two better at Florida State, and. I would say maybe even more than that, I'd yeah. argue, but that's, yeah. I don't know that they're threatening Clemson or anything, you know, anything like that, but they'd probably be better than what they were. So, yep. Sam Howell can run away from a bad offensive line. They didn't really have anybody on the roster who could do that. Yep. Certainly not Alex Hornibrook. Certainly nobody that they were playing. Yeah, definitely not yeah. Alex Hornibrook. Uh, North Carolina 55, Temple 13. A big win that should springboard them, I think, into next year, give them some momentum going into the offseason. Um, Really good performance from the Tar Heels there in Annapolis. Uh, moving on, the Tony the Tiger Sun Bowl. Hmm. Hmm. Speaking of Florida State. Yeah, Arizona State 20, Florida State 14. This was just about as disgusting as we thought it was going to be. Um, it was 9 nine nothing at halftime. Uh, Florida State comes back, takes a 14-9 lead at the end of the third quarter with a, a little touchdown run at the end of a long drive. And then a one-play, 91-yard drive on a pass from James Blackman to Scary Terry. Um, so that was a, a big play. Then Arizona State quickly comes back, kicks a field goal, makes it a two-point game. And then a 25-yard pick six with about 10 minutes left. And that did it. 20-14 uh, to 14 was the final. Um, so Arizona State pulls out the win and uh, wins by six. So most importantly, Mike, they covered. And uh, Florida State, and yeah, I, I think they played kind of hard for Odell Haggins, but... No Cam Akers, and after that, you know, it was one long play to Tamori and Terry, but other than that, it was a it was a rough go of it on offense for uh, for the Knolls here. Yeah, there's a reason why Cam Akers accounted for the majority of Florida State's offense this year at the running back position, and they really missed him in the bowl game. You know, Cam Akers declared for the NFL draft, said, I'm not playing in this bowl game. Could you freaking blame him? Hard um, no. Hard no. They turned the ball over six times. Six James turnovers. Black- yeah, six turnovers. James Blackman throws four interceptions in this game. And if anybody is asking why Florida State doesn't throw the football more, that is one of the many reasons why. Uh, Blackman also lost a fumble. Yes. 
So he had five turnovers by himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about Jaden Daniels for Arizona State being pretty exciting as a freshman. He had 12 carries for 36 yards. He was 12 of 28. Gross. Uh, for 195 yards, no touchdowns, no picks. Arizona State did just enough in this game not to lose. Yeah. Jaden Daniels, as much as we said, he re- kind of resembles Bryce Perkins. Not in this game, he didn't. Um, not in this game, he didn't. And Joey, you know, it's pretty funny in this game, too. Arizona State wins this game without scoring a single offensive touchdown. Oof. So, that, that's a rough L to take for Florida State. Two on that for a moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's. Yeah, I got Oof. nothing else here. <laughs> that's. Not great. Not great at all. Uh, Arizona State twenty, Florida State fourteen. Let's just keep moving. Let's just let's just get the hell out of here. We don't want to talk about that. Uh, the thing that we, we, we don't. oh, do we want to talk about this? The new era pinstripe bowl, Mike. Michigan State twenty seven, Wake Forest twenty one. Mike, this was. Right. By the way, this was the miracle under to end all miracle unders. It was. I was. <laughs> I so I bet the under mm-hmm. and. I told you that I wasn't sure how many of these bets when we were doing these previews, how many bets I would actually make this bowl mm-hmm. season. I guaranteed you I would be betting the under in this game. And, oh, man, that was off to a really, really terrible start. Um, there were 41 points scored in the first half. And a touchdown on the first drive of the second half by Michigan State. Yep, and the over-under was 49.5? I think it was 50, but, yeah, I guess so 49.5, 50, something like that. And at that point, you knew, okay, this is over. It's 48 points, and we've still got 20 minutes of game to play. This is over. And then what happened, Joey? Punt, punt, punt. Red zone turnover, red zone turnover on downs, red zone turnover. Punt, missed field goal, turnover on downs, end of game. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> there, yeah, there Never were like doubt. four red zone turnovers in the second half of this game, and it was just the most ridiculous, you know, miracle under of all miracle unders. So... Uh, props to these guys for uh, getting it done when it really counted. Um, other than that, I mean, Wake Forest, I, I was impressed with what they did in the first half. Um, they were moving the ball extremely well, a lot better than I thought they were going to against Michigan State. Um, they came out and scored touchdowns uh, on you know on the first drive, scored a couple more in the second quarter. Um, there was a, I guess, a pick six from Michigan State, but Wake Forest was was keeping themselves in the game. I mean, they had the one point lead at halftime and they led for a majority of the first half. So, you know, good effort from them. I I didn't think it was going to work as well as it did for them. But um, at the end of the day, Michigan state comes back and holds onto a lead through uh, all sorts of weird circumstances in the second half here, Mike. Yeah. uh, Michigan state winning this game. I mean, somebody had to win, I guess, right? Yeah. Um, Pretty much it. Yeah, Michigan State scored the one touchdown that was important, the only touchdown of the second half, and that ended up being decisive. Um, so we'll get into Jamie Newman transferring later, but real quick, uh, Sam Hartman, mm-hmm. he played in this game briefly through two incomplete passes, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kept his redshirt status for this year, right? So this mm-hmm. season doesn't count against his eligibility. He was able to redshirt. This was the fourth game that he played in, and you and I talked about them planning to do that earlier this year because – they basically said so. They announced it. They said, barring foreseen circumstances, Sam Hartman's going to be redshirting. And we were wondering, we said, okay, that's pretty smart move. Space out the eligibility between Hartman and Newman. It makes sense. It makes even more sense now that Newman's transferring. And I wonder if Dave Clawson knew that earlier this season. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. It's a little uh, little conspiracy theory, if that's where we want to go with it. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's, 
that's a a valid point to make. Um, they're going to need Sam Hartman moving forward with no Jamie Newman. But again, we'll uh, we'll hit that here in a little bit. Um, do want to keep working through these games and get get uh, finished with those. Uh, Michigan State twenty seven, Wake Forest twenty one. I don't know. There was really a whole lot of anything particularly to hit on in that game. Uh, Mich- uh, Brian, Brian Lewerke threw for over 300 yards. I was, I guess, a surprise. Yeah, Michigan State's offense, I was going to say, a little more productive than I was expecting, and, and especially through the air. I mean, this is not a particularly well-balanced Michigan State team typically, but, yeah, Brian Lewerke, 37 attempts, 320 touchdown and only one pick. Like, that's that's a hell of a day through the air, and especially in, in a, on a baseball field in, in the Bronx. Like, what an effort. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I expected Michigan State to have some success just because Wake Forest defense is so bad, but they had 497 yards of offense, and even for Michigan State, that was something I was not expecting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that Wake Forest defense, excuse me, because um, Michigan State's offense hasn't been all that good this year, and they've racked up nearly 500 yards. That is not a good look for the Wake Forest defense. Yeah, not at all, not at all. Uh, Michigan State 27, Wake 21. Uh, a couple more here, Mike. The Quick Lane Bowl. Pittsburgh 34, Eastern Michigan 30. Holy cow, this was a lot more of a game than I thought it was going to be. There was a lot going on here. This one was weirdly chippy as well. And I don't know if that was just, you know, Eastern Michigan trying to take it to a a Pittsburgh team that probably had them outgunned. But it really took a huge game from Maurice Fafrench. 12 catches for 165 yards and a touchdown, um, including a 96-yard touchdown pass. I think it was the second quarter. Um, Pitt goes down ten nothing early in this game. Ultimately, they're down twenty to seventeen at halftime. Um, had to kind of come back a little bit there in the second half. It took a last minute uh, touchdown, about forty five seconds left. Uh, Kenny Pickett twenty five yards to Tazir Mack uh, to take the lead. Eastern Michigan gets the ball back at one point, uh, and finally, with about ten seconds to go, their quarterback throws a punch at a Pittsburgh player and catches the he. You know, it looked like he caught an official, but really he caught the brim of the hat of an official. Hall of Fame flop. Oh, it was a flop to end all flops, Mike. Uh, that official went down like he had been shot. Um, and Yep, that's how you get a guy ejected. That's right. Uh, so Eastern Michigan's quarterback, Mike Glass, who is by all means seems like a hell of a player, finishes out his college career 10 seconds early by <laughs> punching out a ref after an otherwise pretty remarkable performance. So... Um, they, you know, they hung in there and it was pretty clear they had the home field advantage and, and they really wanted to be there probably a little more than Pitt did, but, um, uh, Pitt able to pull it out at the end. That would have been a, uh, would have been a little bit of an embarrassing out of conference loss here, Mike. And, uh, would have, would have sucked to have more than one of those on the same day. Yeah. Especially considering Eastern Michigan ends the year with a losing record now. Um, mm-hmm. and this was one of those games I lost at the window, Joey. I think Pittsburgh was like an 11 or 12 point favorite, something like that. Yep. I, we, you and I both thought they would cover this game easily. They did not. Yep. <laughs> um, Eastern Michigan played well. Yeah, Mike Glass, over 300 yards through the air, a couple touchdown passes, had a touchdown run on the ground as well. We got good Kenny Pickett in this game, Joey. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's pretty good. 27 to 39, 361, three touchdowns. That was really good. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was a very, very competitive game, much more competitive that, than I expected. I know you didn't expect this either. Uh, but for Pittsburgh to to cut out this win is good because you don't want to lose to an Eastern Michigan team that had a losing record in the MAC this year. Yeah, that would not have been a good look. So, um, yeah, good day for Pitt and Kenny Pickett. Kind of, you know, it's the Quick Lane Bowl and it's Eastern Michigan, but but you won, so that's that's all that really matters, I suppose. That's for sure. Pittsburgh thirty four, Eastern Michigan thirty, and now Mike, we got two more here that are a couple of clunkers. Let's start with the less clunker, and that's saying something. 
Cincinnati, number 21, Cincinnati, 38, Boston College, 6. Boston College had to block a field goal and run it back for a touchdown to do anything on the scoreboard in this game. They come away with 164 yards of offense. Uh, They did not convert a third down the entire game. They had no A.J. Dillon. They had obviously no Anthony Brown. And sure enough, Dennis Grissell and David Bailey were not enough to get it done. This is a, a pretty good Cincinnati team, all things told. I mean, they, they finish 11-3 and three after this win, but Boston College just not in a place where they were going to be remotely competitive here. It was uh, it was a brutal, brutal afternoon for the Eagles, and uh, I think they're just ready to move on to the Jeff Halfley area. Yeah, and if you wanted a realignment of bowls or if you want some more competitive bowl matchups, look no further than a Cincinnati team that was like, I don't know, one to two possessions away in either game that they played, like in the final game against Memphis or um, again against Memphis in the conference championship game for the AAC title. Uh, Cincinnati played Memphis back-to-back weeks. They lost both of those. Um, And Cincinnati, which is one win away from a New Year's Six, ends up in the ticket smarter uh, Birmingham Bowl against a Boston College team that was average at best this year, just scratching and clawing to bowl eligibility. Mm-hmm. And Cincinnati did what good teams do, and they absolutely blew the doors off of Boston College. And that was the easiest bet of the season, Joey. The yeah. easiest bet. Even if you didn't think Cincinnati wanted to be there, which we questioned in the preview, they were easily the better team. And when you have to block a field goal to score your only points of the game, that should tell you something. 38 to 6 was the final here. Cincinnati, Joey, I thought they played well, especially on the ground. I mean, they had 343 yards rushing and four touchdowns. They ran the ball really well, but I didn't come away from this game thinking, oh man, Cincinnati played like the best game they've played all year. I mean, they played well, but it was like, man, for a team that probably was not probably was one win away from a New Year's six and is probably unmotivated to be there. They really just kicked the teeth into Boston College. I mean, this play, yeah. Boston College played like a team that didn't have a head coach. If you just go look at the box score and you took the team logos off of it, you would think that this was like, you know, this year's Louisville team late in the year playing Mercer or like some FCS team. Like it was just that badly mismatched all the way down the line. So rough afternoon for Boston College. I don't want to rub it in anymore. It was just a, a total clunker. Uh, Cincinnati, 38, Boston College, 6. And now, Mike, the clunker that you've all been waiting for. Louisiana Tech. Save the best for last. Louisiana Tech, 14. Miami, nothing. Miami got shut out in Shreveport by Louisiana Tech. Ouch. Ouch, ouch, ouch. I don't know what to say about this. This This was a disaster for Miami. I got more gifts for Christmas than Miami scored points in a bowl game. <laughs> yep. I got more gifts than Boston College scored points in their bowl game for what that's worth, and I'm not trying to flex on anybody, but yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. man, you're a sixth gift guy. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, um, yeah. I have a dollar in my wallet. Yep. More than more than the points of Boston that, uh, that Miami scored in their bowl game. I'm yeah. Really Good Lord, Miami. Are you oh, serious? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, this was this was just a tire fire from start to finish. Um, reports came out earlier in the day that Miami was going to be moving on from Dan Enos as offensive coordinator after one season. Probably a good idea. Then they were kind of being disputed, and people weren't really sure. And they're like, well, we haven't decided for sure yet, and all this stuff. And then like by the end of this game, we're all like, oh, so that's what they meant by that. Okay, okay, I see, I see. Leave um, no doubt. 
Yeah, absolutely not. Miami held to 74 yards on the ground, um, 15 of 34 passing. Like, this is a little bit of a feisty Louisiana Tech defense, but my gosh. Like, and, and I'll tell you, Mike, I'll, I'll say this. I feel bad for guys like Shaq Quarterman and, and some of the guys on Miami's defense. Miami's defense was absolutely playing their ass off in this game. Like, and you they saw, well. yeah, and you saw going into the fourth quarter, like, Shaq Quarterman over there with a huge huddle around him saying, this is my last game. We're going to go down fighting, you know, getting his guys fired up, saying it doesn't matter that we haven't scored any points yet. Like, defense has to keep going. And they did, and it didn't matter. Like, Louisiana Tech was only up 7 nothing going into the fourth quarter, and finally they score again with, uh, I think, a couple minutes left. And that was it. Um, just a brutal, brutal day for Miami on offense. They, they looked... They looked slow. They looked like they didn't want to be there. They looked like they just didn't really know what was going on. I mean, they, they barely even ran a play in, like, Louisiana Tech scoring territory, right? Like, I mean, they barely got across the 50 most of the game. So, I, rough game. I don't know how much you can say, but they, they did move on from Danny Nose after this game, and you can totally see the justification here is this offense was as bad as I've seen. Yeah, the, the the defense. Let's talk nicely about Miami for two seconds because that's about all we have. To, it's good to say the defense did play well. Um, Louisiana Tech offensively, they were pretty good this year on mm-hmm. offense. Like they don't have a bad offense, and I thought Miami's defense played exceptionally well considering the circumstances. That was the worst showing offensively that Miami had all year. They've had some bad ones. This yeah. was really really poor. Uh, Joey, we had a Tate Martell sighting in this game. Which yeah, we did. Leads to my next question, unfortunately, for Miami. Um, who is their quarterback? Because they still don't know. Nobody? Everybody? I, I feel like there's like a weird like Dr. Seuss poem that would help explain this to me. Because, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, this is a – this is just a mess, an absolute mess, and um, – it seems pretty clear if if you go read some of Cam's post game stuff on stateoftheu.com, this is a situation on offense that Manny Diaz had damn well better get fixed quick, or it's going to be his job. Yeah, shout out, shout out, Cam. First of all, um, doing the Lord's work, still writing about games right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, he comes on here and he's always bringing the heat, um, whether it's about Miami or someone else. He's always bringing the heat, and he has been 100% spot on with everything he's written and said about Miami since that ball game. So go check out all the stuff he's writing at State of the U. Um, yeah, but I think the one thing that's abundantly clear in what Cam's written, and I completely agree, and we talked about this briefly in the preview, Joey, as well. Miami has no business, and this is a good Louisiana Tech team, by the way, but if Miami puts their best team out there and their best game plan together – there's no reason why Miami shouldn't win this game by two to three touchdowns. It just purely based off of athletes that they have. The problem is that Miami's had athletes now for a while, a really long time. They've always gotten athletes. They've always recruited well. They have not been able to put it together now in a couple couple years straight. They were not very good last year, and they certainly were not very good this year. It fell well short of their expectations. And their 10-win year, now going on three years ago, was quite fluky. We knew it was fluky because of the turnover luck they had uh, when it was happening, but it's becoming more and more apparent that it's even more of a fluke now. And you need to – you. it really makes you wonder – 
number one, is this Manny Diaz hire going to work? Was a promotional hire to a guy who had never been a head coach before the right move? I think early returns on that are certainly not. Can they get it turned around? Sure they can, but I'm not necessarily optimistic about it. And I think firing Dan Enos is a good start. We'll get into who they hired here shortly. But mm-hmm. yeah, this is not great for Miami. It was a really bad first season for Manny Diaz. They were worse than they were last year and the last year under Mark Rick. And it makes you wonder if that year a few years ago was a fluke. And spoiler alert, I think it was. Uh, Miami just, yeah, not great. And I don't see how they finish better than third in the in the ACC Coastal next year. And there's no reason why anybody should be picking them to win the Coastal. I don't care who they have returning, the coaching they have coming back. I don't really care. They still don't have a quarterback. The offensive line wasn't great all year. They didn't run the ball particularly well all year long. The offense as a whole just wasn't very good. And the defense was decent all year. But it's not the best Miami defense they've had in the last three or four years, that's for sure. So a lot of work to do in Miami. Not sure where they go from here. They certainly continue to recruit well. But it's going to be uphill battle here for a while until they get some things figured out. Completely. Louisiana Tech 14, Miami 0. Nothing. You got shut out. Oh my gosh. Unbelievable. This, that, uh, just a train wreck. Um, so Mike, the ACC finishes four and six in bowl games. That's not great. That's not really how you draw it up. Uh, but once again, things that we probably could have seen coming for a while now, uh, as it's been a rough year for the conference. So yeah, considering how bad the conference was all year, this was hardly a surprise. That's right. Um, so good bowl season though. We saw some fun games and, uh, obviously won a lot of bets. So I uh, hope you guys were following us. Yep. Mike, we got a few newsy items we need to hit on here real quick. Um, let's let's start there where, where we just left off. Uh, Miami fires Dan Enos after the loss to Louisiana Tech. Uh, they, in his place, they've turned around and hired Rhett Lashley, um, a name who I, I think he's fallen from grace a little bit in, a, in the last couple of years. Um, he spent the last couple of years at like Southern Methodist, and, and I mean, he ran a really good offense at, at SMU this year. Um, in the previous year, he was at UConn, but before that, he spent a number of years as a Gus Malzahn assistant at Auburn, and even before that at Arkansas State. Um, I think generally regarded as a pretty good offensive mind, he he sort of flamed out at Auburn after a few years, but generally, again, a good offensive mind. He's going to bring a lot of those similar Auburn kind of offensive principles to this offense, and and I think that is pretty badly what Miami has needed is to get away from this just ultra-traditional West Coast thing and actually make use of some of the skill talent in ways that they haven't been able to recently. Yeah. I mean, you've seen it work at Auburn for the most part when Lashley was there. I mean, you mentioned the last couple of years, it wasn't great um, mm-hmm. when he was there and then went to UConn, obviously didn't work out great, but it's UConn. So take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Uh, SMU worked out better. Mm-hmm. And I really like this hire for Miami. I actually think they crushed this hire. I think it was a really, really important hire for Manny Diaz. I think it has the potential to be the hire that turns the program around yeah. because I think if Miami just starts scoring more points offensively and maintains the same level of defense that they've been playing, Miami is easily an eight, nine, 10 win team again. Um, and then maybe even better than that if they continue recruiting at a high level. So yeah, this is a really important hire. I think if Lashley comes in has a couple of really good years as a Miami offensive coordinator, I think this could potentially springboard him into a head coaching job as well. So I think this could definitely work out mutually for both sides, but this was a really important hire for Miami. I think it was a good hire. I think it will work out much, much better than Danny knows. I think this will absolutely utilize the skill talent to a much better degree than Danny knows his offense did in one year under Manny Diaz. Yeah. I don't think this is like a silver bullet, like can't possibly fail kind of hire. 
But I do. I, I I'm with you. I think this is a good hire. I think this is going to bring some really necessary schematic change. I think there's going to be some improvement. Um, the degree of that improvement is probably still a little bit up for discussion, and we'll have to see exactly what it looks like. But probably predicated on who's playing quarterback. I mean, has a lot to do with it. Yeah, a lot to do with it. Yep. Um, and and I I don't I don't know um, exactly how well it's going to work. But the biggest thing is really just probably a few schematic changes a and b some consistency it is it is getting a little bit more consistency in there and if you can do that yeah that that completely changes the the fortunes of the miami program in my mind and and completely changes the manny diaz tenure um i I don't know who is out there that i would have been targeting other than rhett lashley so i I, i've got no problem with this hire i think this is a good move and and we'll see if it works out yep i don't think it I don't think it necessarily does anything to their ceiling. I still think Miami has always had a very high ceiling because of where they are and how they recruit and, you know, just history of the program, everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it certainly raises their floor, I think, because the offense, I mean, it can't get much worse than it was under Enos. Absolutely. Uh, Boston College, new head coach Jeff Halfley. Uh, he's hired his coordinators. Uh, Frank Signetti Jr. is going to be the offensive coordinator, and I'm going to 100% butcher this, Tem Lukabu is going to be the defensive coordinator here for Jeff Halfley. And, Mike, when I heard these names, I, I felt a little bit off guard and, and confused. It's like, I don't feel like I just get totally lost for some names that get hired as coordinators in the Power Five these days. I, I feel like a lot of the names I've heard somewhere or other, I had not heard either of these names. And I was starting to wonder why. And I realized, Mike, both of these guys have been in the NFL for the most part for like the last, eh, I don't know, decade or so. Like in in these the, the familiarity here for Halfley is that they all worked together on like Greg Schiano's staff at you know at Rutgers in the earliest part of the decade. It are you okay with sitting here just going like straight NFL guys here at Boston College? Is that part of the vision? Do you think? Well, if you can't recruit anyway, why try now? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, it's a valid point. That was my immediate reaction to it. It was like, well, they got a bunch of NFL guys who probably can't recruit. But, hey, Boston College hasn't been recruiting anyway, so. If you're not going to recruit, go run the triple option. Like, Yeah, just uh, just coach the guys that you have well and don't worry about recruiting. Yeah. That's the Boston College way. That's why they're an eight-win program at their ceiling. That's right. This, this felt like a weird, I don't know. I feel like there's something going on here that I don't really understand what they're going to be trying to go for. And some of these NFL hires, it's, it's really – not even that they haven't, you know, not they haven't very recently coached college football, but like it's they've been mostly NFL guys, and now you got to turn around and and start recruiting and doing some things, and it's just it's a little bit of a different ball game, and I I'm kind of turning my head a little bit here of like, wait, how is this going to fix what ails Boston College right now? I don't understand. Yeah, and I'm still not necessarily sure that the cast of characters that they've put together uh, on their coaching staff is necessarily much better than what they've had under Steve Adazio. That's not to say that they shouldn't have fired Adazio and, you know, tried to be better. Um, That's something that you and I both agreed with. We thought that that was a fine move to let Adazio go and try to chase a higher ceiling and all that stuff. And that was fine. But then you hire a first time head coach and you hire now to an offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator that only are NFL guys, which is fine also, but you're not going to necessarily recruit at a high level at Boston college anyway, by pure geography. And you're not really getting guys who have experience recruiting at a high level. Does that mean it won't work? No, it 
I'm sure it could still work, but I have some questions. Yeah, I, I've got a lot of questions. Um, a couple more things on here. Uh, NC State, rough year, four and eight. White. Uh, White. Didn't didn't go great for them. Uh, Dave Doran fired both his coordinators in their place. He hired offensive coordinator Tim Beck out of Texas and previously Ohio State. And then he promoted safeties coach Tony Gibson to defensive coordinator. Uh, most importantly here, you hired an OC who has kind of flamed out slash almost borderline failed at a couple of bigger jobs here. And it's it's good to have guys, I think, that are associated with some of those bigger blue blood programs. But is, is this going to fix what ails NC State on offense? Good for This is the opposite of Boston College. This is, hey, good for recruiting, uh, bad for coaching. Right, like yeah. you're getting guys who have recruited at bigger programs, right? Mm-hmm. Who have had some success doing so, and teams that have recruited well in the past, and you're plucking them and putting them on your staff. Good move, but now you're asking them to also coach at a high level, and they've been fired now a couple times from a couple different places. And if they haven't been fired, they failed a couple times. Not mm-hmm. that this isn't a tough profession, coaching, and not that this means you're a bad coach if you've been fired from somewhere, but this is one of those deals where, okay, if it hasn't worked at three or four different places, what makes you think it's going to work at NC State? Which, NC State's a fine job, but, I mean, this seems like we're coming to make or break territory for Dave Doran, and this is who you're hiring. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, Tim Beck took over as offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach at Ohio State after Tom Herman left for Texas – or for yep. Houston, excuse me. Yep. Um, and I just – I can't help but feel like there has been a little bit of a pattern of, you know, those two years at Ohio State and then the last couple of years at Texas. I don't know that they are really developing quarterbacks in the way that they're capable of. Like, I feel like there's a lot of wasted potential that's happened here and some stuff. So I don't love this hire. And I'm not trying to poo-poo, like, what Boston College is doing, what NC State is doing. Like, but it's just it's just looking at these moves and some of the, the track records of some of these guys, it's... I'm struggling to connect that with this is going to result in success in college football. That's where exactly where I'm at with it too. Mm-hmm. And it's just, we're now seeing this at a couple different places. So yeah, keep an eye on that. And pretty Virginia tech Hokies fans out there. I'm sure you saw this, but Brian Mitchell, former defensive backs coach lands on his feet. He's now going to be the cornerbacks coach at NC state as well, which I think that's a good coaching hire. Mm-hmm. Um, Virginia Tech had a pretty good defensive back unit, but he wasn't the greatest recruiter at Virginia Tech. So something to keep an eye on, even if he does start to recruit a little bit better, he might negatively recruit against your school. Yeah, this is is going to be interesting because this is basically Dave Doran's way of saving his job was getting rid of a couple of coordinators, and these are the guys now that he's hitching his wagon to. And for his sake, it better work. If not, NC State might be uh, looking for a new coach here another year or so. So... Time will tell. Yep. A couple more things, Mike. A couple players that are going to be leaving their current spots, as we mentioned earlier. Deshaun McLeese uh, announced today, as we record on Monday the 6th, he's going to the NFL draft. Um, I I felt like, to a certain degree, that's a bit of a head-scratching move. But at the same time, I would say, if you're a, uh, a running back with NFL aspirations, probably don't wear any more tread off the tires in college than you have to. Um, you got a limited shelf life in the NFL. And so, if, you know, if you're going to go, then I guess you just go ahead and go. 
Uh, and then the other one, probably even bigger, uh, Wake Forest quarterback Jamie Newman. After a huge year and he started to gain, gain a lot of praise and a lot of attention, he's entered his name in the transfer portal. Looks like he's trying to get out of Winston-Salem, which kind of confused or caught me off guard a little bit. Uh, but the the leader in the clubhouse, as far as we know for now, for his services, appears to be Oregon, which you want to talk about a way to kind of get, you know, put up on a pedestal a little bit or kind of get your, your skills on display for, for the world. Play for a big-name school that's coming off a Pac-12 title and, you know, playing in the Rose Bowl and all this. I mean, you'll get a lot of attention out there, and I think that could do him really well uh, for his NFL futures. Yeah, I think so, too. And Jamie Newman's coming off of, obviously, a strong finish to last year, and he's coming off of a really strong year this year and, you know, wants to get exposure at a bigger program, and I think that could work. Um, you know, I mentioned the angle earlier where I'm wondering if Dave Clawson was aware of this earlier in the season with how he treated Sam Hartman. And if so, and Jamie Newman, you know, basically told him that this is totally here. This is not reporting. This is just us speculating. Um, that's cool for Jamie Newman to let Dave Clawson know, hey, this is probably my last year at Wake Forest. If you want to handle the Sam Hartman thing a certain way, sure. But that's not how football really works i'm just curious to see if that's how it happened anyway sam hartman red shirts that's probably good now because jamie newman's out the door dave clausen didn't seem all that surprised jamie newman was leaving that's the only reason why i kind of speculate that this might be something that came up maybe in the past yeah um but yeah speculation would be a good spot yeah i think that's totally valid speculation i mean yeah a lot of signs would point uh, towards that yeah, and Mario Cristobal runs, I mean, you know, they've had a good offense under Justin Herbert, and I think that it's something that would, with the ability to run and throw, it would fit Jamie Newman's skill set, and I think that would be a really exciting offense. I'm not sure that, I, I'm not calling Jamie Newman Justin Herbert, so let's not go down that route, but Jamie Newman is a very good quarterback. He's not maybe the prospect that Justin Herbert was, but at the college level, I'm not sure that the offense drops off a whole hell of a lot if you're going to Jamie Newman from Justin Herbert as good as Justin Herbert was at Oregon and as great of a quarterback prospect as he is for the NFL. I think we kind of tend to mix up sometimes the fact that you can be a really, really good college quarterback and be a comp to your peers while not necessarily being the NFL prospect of your peers. And I think that might be the case here with Jamie Newman. If he takes over at Oregon, I wouldn't expect much of a drop off offensively. Yeah, no, I, I think he's very capable. I think the offense would need to look a little different. It would. Um, you know, he, he's not maybe quite as refined of a passer. and He's a, a better runner, I think, than Herbert. But uh, a lot of potential to see some real fireworks. He is an ex- extremely talented kid. And I should probably say this now. I I think I have probably pretty badly underestimated Jamie Newman's potential as an NFL quarterback. Um, he He's, you know, a, a better passer than I think I was giving him credit for before the year. Um, he, he throws the ball well. He, he, he plays with a lot of poise. He's a, he's a tough guy. He's very athletic. He, he brings a lot to the table. And I, I think I have mischaracterized him thinking he's only going to be a college guy. I, th- I think he's got a very good chance to, to make some noise in the NFL draft next year and um, in the league moving forward. You know, So I just wanted to say that before he's gone and we, uh, we never talk about him again. Yeah. Uh, we want to just give one last token of appreciation for somebody that we've underappreciated, I guess. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Okay, that's cool. So if he lands at Oregon, that'd be really good. Quickly on Deshaun McLeese, um, this is kind of interesting. He was in the transfer portal last year. You'll remember we talked about um, he ends up staying at Virginia Tech. Had a decent year this year. Um, probably his best that he's had at Virginia Tech. Had a really strong finish to the year. Obviously capped off with a pretty good last few games and a very strong bowl game effort that we mentioned earlier. 
Um, he's likely a later round pick in the NFL draft. I think this is more of a situation at Virginia Tech where, you know, they're bringing in a transfer, Khalil Herbert from Kansas at running back. Jalen Holston will be back healthy next year after only playing in part of the Boston College game in the opener uh, before missing the entire season. Uh, Virginia Tech still has an up and coming Keyshawn King on the roster who's going to only be a sophomore next year. So it's a really, really deep running back room. We know that Virginia Tech loves to mix things up running the football. It's not necessarily the same running back all the time. And I think Deshaun McLeese wants to capitalize on a strong end to the season and a running back situation next year that could be pretty dicey if he doesn't get a ton of carries. Yep. I, I think that's reasonable. And it, I hear it, and my first thought is, like, is he really an NFL running back? But then if you right. start thinking about it in him and his situation in particular, it's, you know, this probably just makes sense. Just go on and, and go for it and take your shot. If you're watching the Philadelphia Eagles and you see Boston Scott at running back and what he was able to do, like, the last half of the season with all the injuries and in the playoffs and the Eagles lost yesterday, and I understand all that, but he's, like, the same type of guy. Like, he's a little – he's a smaller back, like, more shifty. Mm-hmm. But – has the ability at times to run between the tackles. Like that's what you're going to get. You're going to get a third down back out. Sean McLeese at the next level. Yeah, for sure. Mike, that's all I got. This has gone uh, pretty long. You got anything else before we get out of here? I think we're good. That was really in depth. That was a lot more in depth than I intended it to be, but that's, you know, usually how it tends to go. I talked a lot. So <laughs> there we go. That's what happened. That's new. Um... <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Thanks buddy. Shots fired. Uh, all right, Mike, we're going to get out of here. We're going to come back. we got a preview of the national title game. we got some more uh, postseason festivities for you, too, in the, in the, in the hopper here. So we're going to work on that here in the uh, short term. But in the meantime, y'all can find us on Twitter. I am at FTRS Joey. He is at Mike McDaniel SI. Together, we're at BC Podcast ACC. Y'all can send us an email with your questions, comments, concerns, anything at all to the longest email address, no demand, basketballconferencepodcast at gmail.com. Nailed it. Thank you. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Breaker, and uh, the Overcast app. You know, Most importantly, Mike, they can find us on Anchor. Uh, and Mike, you want to tell me where they can find us on the social medias? Facebook. Facebook.com slash basketball conference rate review. Find all of our podcasts there, Jay. Please do. Please do. Appreciate those who have. Uh, Mike, that's all I got. Anything else before we get out of here? I think we're good, man. I think we're good. On to the national championship preview, which, spoiler alert, Clemson's in it. Yep, we've been doing this podcast for four years now, and uh, this is the third national title game we'll have previewed. So that's uh, it, it never gets old, I'll say. It does not. Absolutely. All right. Well, until then, for Mr. Mike McDaniel, I am Joey Weaver. We will talk to you again soon to preview the national title game. And until next time, go ACC. Go ACC.